Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I have never minded ignorance. Uh, you know, we're all ignorant, uh, only in different areas. But what calls me is arrogance combined with ignorance. And that's what I got in an unsigned letter from a listener challenging my recent uh, coverage of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The person pointed out that King was an adulterer and a plagiarist, as though he had somehow discovered something utterly unknown by the world, or somehow hidden from the public by the blind devotion of King's, King's ignorant followers. Uh, as it turns out, the writer is both ignorant and arrogant, because neither King's adultery or plagiarism is news. I began talking about it back in 1991, when his preaching companion and best friend, Ralph Abernathy, published the autobiography, his autobiography, When the Walls Come Tumbling Down. It was 31 years ago now. Before that, King's adultery was strongly rumored as early as the 1960s, but Abernathy's testimony kind of sealed it because he had a unique relationship with King. Uh, these two men spent the civil rights era together. They, uh, their house and church were both bombed. They marched together, ate together, organized together, went to jail together. And many of us thought that Abernathy's testimony couldn't be challenged. Well, some people did challenge it. But a few years later, Abernathy's story was strengthened because the handwritten notes by, F by the FBI who surveilled King were made accessible. David Garrow, who authored the book Bearing the Cross, his Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of King, believes that these notes are really damaging to our picture of King. And so the debate is no longer ever over whether or not he was an adulterer, but whether he was an indiscriminate and unrestrained adulterer. Uh, King died at the age of 39, and we know he was conflicted about his transgressions. Look, he was an ordained Baptist minister, had to stand up in the pulpit, preach chastity. He was, uh, by all accounts, dedicated to his wife. He was also the hero of white liberal Protestants who were advocating for situation ethics and giving him plenty of excuses uh, for his lapses. And all this is why Jesus warns us against judging harshly. We just don't know all the forces that impinge on a person's natural concupiscence. For some people, chastity is relatively easy because they lack both opportunity and libido. Other people have potential lovers thrown in their lap, and they have the libido of a rabbit. So what do I think of King's uh, adulterous transgressions? Well, I think of them the same way I think of King David's and John Kennedy's. They're mortal sins. They're grievous transgressions that open the door to destructive forces that can destroy families. And no amount of claiming that he was overtaxed or away from home for long periods of time or that he was seduced by wily women, none of these excuses can bleach out the stain of his adulteries. King knew he was a sinner. He told an Atlanta congregation, I make mistakes tactically, I make mistakes morally, and get down on my knees and confess it and ask God to forgive me. And then he said, God does not judge us by the separate incidents or the separate mistakes that we make, but by the total bent of our lives. Well, that's not exactly Catholic teaching. Not all sins are equal, nor can they be justified because we're committed to some grand vision of the kingdom. But I look to his wife, Coretta Scott King. What's her opinion of him? Well, she's continued to defend his memory. She had the bigger picture of the man. And Garrow does know that as he's listened to hundreds of King's telephone conversations that had been wiretapped and transcribed by the FBI, he was scandalized 
by King's sexual exploits, but he also experienced increased, indeed elevated appreciation of King's integrity and courage. Yeah, the adultery is sordid. It demeaned his marriage, scandalized his wife and friends. It was hypocritical, set a terrible example for other leaders in the movement. No talk of his beloved community can justify it. But his death defects, his sins, don't entirely define the man. And the final judgment, of course, is not in our hands or in his wife's hands. It's in the hands of God. Now, on the plagiarism issue, again, this is not news. Uh, no matter how many people might be unaware of it, the plagiarism was first reported in, in the December 3rd, 1989 edition of the Sunday Telegraph by Frank Johnson. It was titled, Martin Luther King, Was He a Plagiarist? It reached the United States in the Wall Street Journal in November of 1990. And a week later, David Garrow, again the same biographer, wrote about it in the Washington Post. And what remained at that time was for Boston University, who had granted the doctorate to King, to finally convene a group of scholars to investigate. They finally did, and in 1991, they concluded, quote, There is no question but that Dr. King plagiarized in the dissertation by appropriating material from sources not explicitly credited in notes or mistakenly credited or credited generally and at some distance in the text from a close paraphrase or verbatim quotation. Uh, despite its finding, the committee said no thought should be given to the revocation of Dr. King's doctoral degree, uh, they thought that would serve no purpose. They did, uh, however, insert uh, a letter detailing these findings in his official dissertation in their library. Well, back in 1991, I interviewed Claiborne Carson, who was in charge of the King Papers Project. Carson was a serious scholar who would like to have defended King, but couldn't, given the weight of the evidence. He did point out, though, that the plagiarism was of a varied sort, and it was somewhat puzzling. Garrow summed up the problem in the Washington Post piece, quote, First, neither the project editors, that is the paper's project editors, neither the project editors nor those of us in the scholarly community who have reviewed their findings have any dependable explanation for why King did what he did. Nor can we say how aware King was of having done wrong. There's simply no getting around the fact that the scale of King's unattributed borrowings almost word-for-word -word copying of sentences and whole paragraphs without benefit of quotation marks on scores of occasions, often with minimal footnoting, is extensive and substantial. In particular, King's heavy reliance on an unpublished dissertation completed three years earlier by Boston University doctoral candidate Jack Boozer is especially egregious. Again, this is weird because the Boozer and the King family were friends and remained friends even after the revelation of plagiarism. The whole thing is a bit of an enigma. When he was at uh, Crozier Theological Seminary, he was known as a serious and dedicated student. He got consistent B's and oftentimes A's. He was elected student body president, class valedictorian. He was recommended uh, to Boston University as a man of high character, exceptional intellectual ability. The uh, uh, dean of the school, uh, the seminary, said King was one of the most brilliant students we have ever had at Crozier. And Garrow sharpens the point. In other words, not only did King know better than to borrow as extensively and repeatedly as he did, he also was smart and skillful enough to do the work and do it well without any need to plagiarize. I, when I finally got around to reviewing the plagiarized passages myself, 
what struck me was that they were often from works that his dissertation committee had to be familiar with, including the Boozer dissertation, which they had reviewed only three years before. Uh, he must have known he, was gonna, he could be found out, but he donated all of his writings to Boston University six years before he was assassinated. And that donation shows that King probably felt no guilt about his scholarly work and probably didn't regard what he had done as plagiarism. I'll tell you, it's, it is weird. Uh, as a writer myself, uh, I'm very aware of the problem of footnoting. I have nearly a thousand footnotes in my book, Dangerous to the Faith, and I'm, I'm very careful about it. But I think one thing that makes sense here, doesn't justify it, but it makes sense. King saw himself fundamentally as a preacher. His daddy was a preacher. And his academic work seems to be a search for language that he can use in public speaking. He wants to express his commitment to a gospel that calls us to pursue the kingdom of God and the betterment of society. So his identity seems to be as a preacher in school to appropriate theological scholarship, not as an academic producing such scholarship. It's also pointed out that he almost always spoke extemporaneously and that his sermons were loaded with memorized passages from great Protestant preachers. You know, when you're preaching, you don't footnote. Uh, And the world of black and white preachers is an oral culture rather than a literary culture. But, again, as Garrow points out, if appreciating the young king as a product of oral traditions makes his academic bad habits more understandable, it does not make them excusable. You know, I know the king is held... Uh, almost as a saint in some churches. I've actually seen him uh, in stained glass windows. That's the wrong place to memorialize him. What my correspondent didn't seem to understand is that King is not held in high esteem for his scholarship or sanctity or even his commitment to Christian doctrine. He's admired for his moral heroism in facing the hatred, prejudice, and indifference found in American society. He was a man at the right time called to perform under fire, and he did. He led a nonviolent movement of social reform and resistance to injustice. He didn't foment revolution, but simply asked America to make good on its promise of liberty for all. And he wouldn't look away. He demanded to be taken seriously. And he did so in an elevated tone that white America came to respect and black America recognized as smart. What's funny is that we, you know, as Christians, take Jesus' words about Solomon's greatness to heart. Uh, But in truth, Solomon had 900 concubines, uh, you know, through treaties he made with foreign governments, and there's little doubt that he had a personal harem that violated monogamy regularly. He was not only uh, an adulterer, but he was also a plagiarist, if you want to be scrupulous about this. Many of the Proverbs attributed to him can be found in Egyptian sources written down before his day. Nobody should look to Martin Luther King Jr. as a model for marriage or scholarship. He was called to lead a social movement that transcended his expectations. He didn't engineer his leadership. He was called by his own community in Montgomery, Alabama, to lead the bus boycott that brought him to national reputation. After that, He didn't feel his life was his own. 
his wife, and he were both troubled by what he seemed called to do. They lived in fear, were constantly taunted, taunted and threatened by hate mongers. His house had been bombed. He'd been stabbed. He'd been beaten. Now, maybe he should have stayed home and been a better husband and father. Okay, maybe. But he felt he was called by God or circumstances or fate, but definitely by his people to lead an unusually successful movement of nonviolent resistance to deeply embedded social evils. And this man had his blood shed in pursuit of the call he had received. You know, if a person cannot see the heroism in this story, then he's missing an eye. So yeah, the problems are really there, but the heroism is also there. I'm Al Crestle.